most people would rather stand with the crowd and sort of wrap themselves in the virtue of the crowd and in the platform of the party than to question and stand up and do what's right and have to stand apart. And I think it's especially true for women. I never sort of trusted the right to not be hypocritical, but then to realize that your own team that you were a part of because you thought they believed in things like civil liberties, freedom of speech, I thought they cared about children, I thought they were anti-war, I thought they cared about protecting the little guy from corporate malfeasance. They don't care about any of those things. So pardon me if I'm more obsessed with the left hypocrisy at the moment, but I am. But I do think most human beings have a sort of religious impulse. And if they reject traditional religion, they will find it elsewhere. And I do think it's very cult-like in its execution um, right now on the left, and I reject it outright. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Connection. I so appreciate you listening to these important, although sporadic, conversations. I hope to get into a consistent schedule with these, but you know, best laid plans and all. Uh, However, the chat with my next guest is so vital to the current culture. Jennifer Say was a beloved employee and CMO, that's Chief Marketing Officer, at Levi's and on track to become the first female CEO of the company ever. However, when COVID came around, she had a few words to say about school closures as well as other policies that harmed children's learning and development. She refused to let it go, rightly so, and was subsequently fired for speaking out against California's draconian policies. And that was just the beginning. Much like another Jennifer I know, this Jennifer came to realize the left was not exactly the party of peace, love, and tolerance it so passionately claims to be. There's a great amount of disillusionment that comes with that realization. Jennifer and I talk about all of it and how she has adjusted her life in response. We discuss not only the terrible decisions made during COVID, but also the new religion of wokeness and the spiritual impulse that underpins it all. I've already said too much, so without further ado, I bring you Jennifer Say. I hate going to the hairdresser because they talk. I don't want to talk to them. That's my... (laughs) I like my girl. Like we're, you know, well, we can kind of jump right into it. I have so much, like, I feel like we could talk for hours. I'm reading your book. Oh my God. Highlight, highlight, highlight. But with my hairdressers, at least the one I have now, it a lot of it was around COVID and the BS that oh. went down. So we're like, can you believe this? And you know, uh, the, see, the mine's mask. new since I moved to Denver. I've tried, so I, I think she's pretty covid <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell. Meaning, I tried, meaning I on mean, the other, like, yeah, not careful. on my team. Yeah, that's fine. I can't totally tell that. That's what I try to just avoid talking to her. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> she yeah. Is. You get a sense like you, Although I will say you do. And being covid as I call it here in Denver, is not the same as San Francisco. Because she still probably worked most of the time. And, you know. Nothing's like it was in California. Nothing like it ever will be in California. It's a whole different. It's like a whole thing. Yeah. So I I tried. My brother lives in Florida and he thinks I exaggerate. And I go, you have no no idea. You live in Florida. They don't understand. They really don't. They think you're lying when you say like people called the police on me for being at the park with my children because they thought they were not all my children. Did they really do that? Yeah. Because when right in the summer of 2020, um, you know, when they allowed us to go to the park as a household, 
like you couldn't mix with other households, but you were allowed to go out of the house because technically you were not supposed to leave your house except to buy food or medicine. That was right. technically the rule. Or you could exercise alone within one mile of your house. I mean, there were just all these rules. So then in June, they're like, okay, you can go out, you can go to the park, although hiking trails were closed, but you could go to the park and sit just with your family. And they had these circles drawn at the park where like that were like six feet apart. So my family is four children. Right. That's a big family. Plus two of the children, my older children are black and my younger children are white and they're really far apart in age. So somebody, there was like a number, a hotline you could call if people were mixing households and people called the police. That was the kind of, you know, caring San Franciscans, the non-racist San Franciscans who couldn't right. understand that I might have children that didn't look exactly like me. I lived in Topanga Canyon during COVID, so I didn't even know what the rules were. I wasn't paying attention. I just yeah, went out and went hiking and took my walks. Like yeah, so I wasn't. Where do you Where do you live now? I'm in Thousand Oaks, so it's a little more sane in Ventura County. It's just yeah. over the county line, and yeah. it's amazing what that did. I moved here and. December of 2021. So things were mostly over, but just, yeah, it, it really was an attitude shift it's just so over the different. county line. I can yeah. imagine. Yeah. So we can kind of backtrack. So catch okay. me up for like the audience who might not know who you are, who doesn't know about your book and kind of what sure. you went through. I mean, there's so many things we can dive into between like, you know, being a woman in the corporate world, um, your gymnastics, all of it, but let's just start with the kind of what made you famous, so to speak. Yeah. Infamous. <laughs> yeah. Um, infamous. Not that, not that famous, although I was out this weekend and was recognized twice, which was sort of weird. My daughter was very impressed. She's six. <laughs> um, yeah, I worked at Levi's for 23 years, just shy of 23 years, worked all the way up from, you know, lowly entry-level marketing assistant to chief marketing officer and then brand president uh, and was a beloved employee. Um, you know, nobody stays that long. I made it my business to know everyone. You know, I had just a long history there, lots of friends um, and was next in line ostensibly to become the first female CEO ever of the company. Uh, but in 2020, right at the beginning of lockdowns and school closures, I was very outspoken about the harms that would come to children from prolonged public school closures, as well as other restrictions like closed playgrounds. I just felt that children were bearing the brunt of these restrictions. They were least at risk and had the most to lose. And yet right. we seemed to kind of load all of our societal anxiety onto them. It seemed very obvious to me what the outcome of this would be. It also seemed obvious from the beginning if we start, started restricting them and demonizing them, that they would continue to bear the brunt of our societal anxiety, which is exactly what happened. Um, I was told for two years while continuing to work at the company and getting promoted in the process, it's worth noting that mm -hmm. I needed to stop talking about these things, that I was mm -hmm. um, upsetting employees, that these um, views that I held were racist and, you know, we can't have a racist as our brand leader, all of these things on and on and on. How did that equate, sorry to interrupt, but how did that yeah, equate to racism? How did, um, how did the COVID a, stuff equate to racism? It's a, it's a great question, but ask any mom who pushed back on closed schools and she will tell you that she was called a racist. And here's the flawed rationale of that um, ad hominem attack. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, again, keep in mind, this is all during the summer of 2020 when there's you know race protests and George Floyd was murdered, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the rationale was, 
if you advocated for public schools to be open, which were dispropor- are disproportionately populated with both low-income students as well as Black and Brown students, which was true in my city of San Francisco, right. perhaps less true in some suburban districts, right. but definitely true in my district. And my children did go to public school and still do here in Denver, um, that you did not care if Black children died. So that was racism. Even though now, they weren't dying, even though the cases... Even though they weren't not existent, basically. To use use their language, the structurally racist policy was to open mostly white attended, all wealthy attended private schools, which they were open in the fall of 2020 in San Francisco and elsewhere, but keep the public schools closed, which barred black children, brown children, (laughs) disproportionately poor children from getting an education. That was the policy that actually furthered, um, you know, the educational gap between the haves and have-nots. It didn't matter, though. Didn't matter. Truth did not matter. That was the, you know, accusation levied is that I did not care um, about Black children dying. And therefore, and this this was an accusation levied by teachers unions and then kind of embraced all the way down the line um, by people posing as (laughs) anti-racist. so, you know, I was called all manner of names for over the course of two years. I was pleaded with to stop. I declined politely to stop and continued to press and, you know, unsuccessfully, frankly, because the public schools in San Francisco did not open until, um, you know, 19 months after the initial closures. We were successful, however, in getting playgrounds open, which was not insignificant. Now it took us nine months. That was a long time for playgrounds to be closed in an yeah. urban area where kids have no other place to play. Let's well, especially clear. California, where the weather, I mean, that was that, that was the ridiculous thing about the whole thing. It's like... Well, and people don't realize if you live in a city, I mean, I lived in San Francisco. I lived in an apartment. It was a nice apartment. I'm not complaining. I had about, you know, four square feet of a porch with one chair. <laughs> like, there's nowhere to play. You know, yeah. even people of privilege, like myself, in a very nice apartment, you take your kid to the playground. That's where you go. There yeah. are hardly any yards in the city. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, people screaming to let your kids play outside. That doesn't exist. So yes, correct. kids had nowhere to play. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't see each other. They couldn't do anything. I was very um, outspoken. And then eventually, about almost two years into my advocacy, uh, I was told there was no longer a place for me at the company. Rather than accept their severance, which was also hush money, I chose mm-hmm. to quit very publicly and um, talk about the silencing of debate and dissent. And I think the punishment of those who hold views that are perhaps, I'm not even going to say outside the mainstream, I'm going to say that we are from the Democratic Party. It did become very political, unfortunately. The podcast I have out now that I've done before you was, um, I was in grad school this past couple of years, I just graduated and I had a data analysis professor and he said, COVID is the gift that keeps on giving. When I was reading your book, I'm like, oh, this is a woman that could look and analyze data because she's used to it in her position. It's not that hard, right? And here's, here's a professional. He was a data analyst. That's what he did. He's a smart guy. He wrote letters. He wrote the LA times. He said, the data is flawed. The modeling is flawed, all this, a professional. And they just shut it down. They just didn't listen to anything rational well, they, no they wouldn't listen it was the this was the sort of um i mean i would argue in the beginning everybody embraced it it wasn't entirely politicized in the beginning you know right. i think but there were very few of us who kind of pushed back from the very beginning you know yeah. even people who became very outspoken 
I think, fell in line in the beginning. Um, but it became deeply polarized and divided along political lines, which it never should have been. In my mind, this was about the protection of children. And if there's anything we could agree upon, it seems it could be that. I, I would be uh, I would be incorrect. <laughs> and it's why I stuck with children, you know, because I had views about all kinds of other stuff. I mean, I was right. opposed to the lockdowns more broadly, but I thought children is where we might be able to come together. So right. I really stuck to that, not just in social media, but I attended school board meetings and I wrote op-eds and ultimately led rallies to get the schools open to no avail. Uh, but that I was just considered, you know, a heretic. I, you know, pushed back on the Democratic Party orthodoxy was which was we must stay locked down. We must close the schools until there's no more COVID, although Democratic leaders can apparently do whatever they want. Because laundry, no problem. Could, Kids yeah. in school, no problem. Yes, exactly. Gavin Newsom can have, you know, an $800 meal at French Laundry, keep his own winery open and go to the Super Bowl and mass. And that's just fine. Yeah. I mean, the the blatant hypocrisy to me, and listen, it's on both sides, but particularly during COVID was just kind of astonishing. Like it was. I, yeah, I, I, I get criticized for only criticizing the Democrats, but I just I feel like, look, I, I think the Republicans are hypocrites as well. And I'm not a Republican. You know, I, I'm not a Democrat anymore either. But I think I'm just so I think the hypocrisy right now is so blatant on the yeah. left. Yeah. Um. And it's it's the tribe that I, you know, hail from. And so it's more uh, upsetting to me, I suppose. I never sort of trusted the right to not be hypocritical, but then to realize that your own team that you were a part of because you thought they believed in things like civil liberties, freedom of speech. They thought they cared about children. I thought they were anti-war. I thought they cared about protecting the little guy from corporate malfeasance. They don't care about any of those things. So pardon me if I'm more obsessed with the left's hypocrisy at the moment, but I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I again, there's so many parallels. I was deep into kind of the progressive causes because I lived in LA and I right. kind of got brainwashed, to be honest. It was like a slow drip feeding of these things. And I lost my own um, critical thinking capacities, which I had growing up. Um, yeah. And so- I get I feel like, though, maybe I, I'm not, I guess, sure, perhaps I was not as critical in my kind of thought processes, but I believed in the, what I just said, I believe that that was what the left stood for. Now, perhaps mm -hmm. they'd always sort of trespass those values, but mm -hmm. there certainly was a time when it was, in fact, the left that stood for free speech. There was. I mean, it was the ACLU that, you know, mm -hmm. fought for the Nazis' right to march in Skokie. Like, that's not a misapprehension on my part. Now, right. when they stopped being that, I'm not really sure, but it became blatantly obvious to me during COVID that they didn't. And now they expressly say that they really aren't for free speech. They expressly defend government censorship of individual citizens as necessary for safety, which is, that's the parlance of tyrants always you know the censors are never the good guys so I guess I'm sure I was blinded in in some ways but I also think there was some validity to this idea that these were the values of the left but I guess they're more classical liberal values than left-leaning values yeah that's why I I Listen, people have called me all sorts of names things too you know it's if you're not a, with the with the party narrative, you're obviously a Nazi or a Republican. You're, exactly. You're obviously all not just a Republican, which is bad enough, but you're like alt right. You probably have a white hood in your closet. You're clearly a 
Nazi. I mean, I get called a Nazi. I'm Jewish. That doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just silly. At a certain point, don't you kind of learn to laugh at it, though? I do. And I've had to g- gain a very thick skin because everyone's called me a grifter and doesn't yeah. really know the personal story behind my kind of my transformation. Um, and I don't really care anymore. I'm too old. Yeah, I don't, you know, I think I don't we care both... anymore either. And that's what, yeah, I think I saw, again, another parallel is like, you know, our... I was a dancer. I obviously was not mm-hmm. at the level of um, expertise that you were with your gymnastics, but it's a similar mindset, very disciplined, very yes. critical, very lots of eating disorders, lots yeah. of eating disorders. Right. Exactly. Um, and so you kind of learn to just, I think, be passive in a way. And yeah. I was wondering if, if, um, if like, because a lot of your story is about finding your voice, right? right? And not being afraid of saying, you know what, I've sat by and I've had, like, I, I relate to your terrible kind of intimate relationships with men during college, like all of yeah. this. I've sat by and taken this for so long. I just can't do it. Like, I think there's a breaking point. And was that what happened for you? You're just like, I can't, I, you know, I'd like to say it. That sounds braver than I think what probably happened. <laughs> I mean, I do believe that, you know, women are sort of trained, at least women, maybe not anymore, Gen X generation, but or Gen Z, but I think Gen X women, which is what I am, you're probably a millennial. I think we were brought up no, just stop to interject. I'm Gen X. I'm, okay, I'm, okay, I'm very Gen X. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think we were sort of brought up to feel like our safety and comfort were secondary to anyone else's. You know, my coaches, any boy or man that you know wanted to behave in an inappropriate way with me. You yeah. know, we were just taught to... It was just inculcated, you know, in us. And I think it was exacerbated in in gymnastics, you know, where a coach held all the authority and you were supposed to believe that he was there to get you what you wanted, which was to be a winner and, you know, by any means necessary and everything he did or she, I had some really vile female coaches, um, Mm. was in your best interest, even if it caused pain and suffering in the short term. And then you were never to speak of if there was, you know, any impropriety of any kind. And but so so I certainly was brought up believing that and we were trained that if we were fully obedient, we would achieve the success that we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was more obedient than I think most young young women embarking on on college, etc. When I say it wasn't as brave as as what you described is when I wrote my first book called Chalked Up, which was about the abuse in the sport. I sort of sat down and wrote it alone to make sense of why I still suffered 20 years after. Like, I didn't have this big, like, I'm going to expose them. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, I got to, why at 40 as a successful business professional, am I still having these issues of, you know, self-esteem and standing up for myself and all of these things. So I sort of wrote it as like a journal kind of mm-hmm. thing to understand. And then after I wrote it, I was like, well, this is actually not bad. Maybe I'll try to sell it and I was able to so I was it all kind of happened in increments like I wasn't really prepared for the backlash that I got there but then once you're in you're in and you know I got such extreme pushback on that book and was called a grifter and a liar and this is back in 2008 when I didn't really understand the dynamics of social media at first I went into self-protection mode and kind of backed away I didn't back away from anything I said but I 
tried to sort of make it, well, this is my personal story. This is not a broad indictment of the sport, right. which it, of course was. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got more confident the more they came at me because I was like, okay, y'all got something to hide here. Clearly, mm-hmm. I didn't know what they were hiding was Larry Nasser, you know, an abuser of hundreds and hundreds of athletes. But I knew they were hiding and obscuring the fact that coaches on the ground across the country, including the national team coach, were pedophiles and physical abusers. So I, my confidence built, if you mm-hmm. see what I'm saying. So it mm-hmm. wasn't like this big, like I didn't mean to kind of light a fire. Right. But then once I had, I'm like, okay, let's do can't this. Go back. <laughs> you can't go back. And it's sort of the same with COVID. Like when I started, it just seemed to all make sense. Like it seems so obvious from the beginning that children weren't at risk, that this was not part of any sort of pre-planning playbook. Like this violated every norm. I thought if I just, I didn't really have much following, but I thought, well, if I just in my own little way speak out, it'll be a little tiny part of helping people realize how ridiculous this is, and then it'll end. That's not what happened. That's so much. So I, <laughs> I sort of, I always say my naivete gets me in trouble. Like I, I don't yeah. start meaning to blow shit up. But you do. <laughs> now I would be more aware. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes in, I would be more aware. But yeah, I, I didn't mean it. But then I get like stubborn. Yeah. You know, because I'm told to stop. And I'm like, but no, I'm right. I, I, I am well, reading the data correctly. And I'm, I'm sort of factually and morally correct here. Yeah. So no, I'm not stopping. How dare you tell me I need to stop? Like, I, I just get more riled up as I go. I think, I think the truth, like when you're like, but this is true. Like you just want to stand up for truth. It's like, that's exactly, that's what propels me. It's like, but this is a lie. You're lying. Yeah. And I, for some reason, I just can't, I can't abide by that. that, That's how I feel. It's like, yeah, I mean, I remember having this one conversation, like I said, it went on two years, the conflict internally. And, you know, one of the folks, one of my peers who was challenging me to stop largely agreed with me on everything she was the head Mm. of human resources and she would even say to me Jen you're right about all this stuff you just can't say it and I was like okay you just lit me on fire I mean that's ridiculous yeah you you know because for the most part 95 percent of what I tweeted about which is you know kind of what got me in trouble although there were also some media appearance of media appearances um but 95% of it was about children. But as we entered into 2021, there were other sort of subjects I started to comment on. And one of the things that made me really angry was, you know, doctors saying we should not treat the unvaccinated. And it harkened back to the 80s and early 90s in San Francisco when there were were a lot of doctors who refused to treat AIDS patients, Mm -hmm. which is now looked back upon and there's whole films about it as you know, a travesty and a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. Um, And so I did comment on that and the wrongheadedness of that. And that upset people. And I said, you can't actually believe that that's the right thing to do for doctors not to treat. She said, well, of course, it's not the right thing to do, but you can't say it. I know. (laughs) I mean, that's like, that would be like saying to me and was, of course, coaches are sexually abusing young athletes, but you can't can't say it. We have to protect the reputation of the sport. Well, no, the sport is the children and we can't harm the children. So, um, yeah, you're right. It's the truth. But most people would rather stand with the crowd and sort of wrap themselves in the virtue of the crowd 
you know, of the crowd and whatever is being said and the platform of the party than to question and stand up and do what's right and have to stand apart. And I think it's it's especially true for women Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, they sort of prey on our empathy. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of what I saw is, is that kind of manipulation of emotion, right? Whether it was men or women, but particularly women. And I'm just like, well, I think men are less inclined to, they still can, but some men, I mean, I, my husband, for instance, and he's an unusual, but he's much more, yeah, he was, I would get in trouble for things he said too. And he was more aggressive in his wording and his stance and his tone. Um, but he doesn't care. He would always say to me, like, why are you upset about this? Why do you care what they think of you? They're liars and hypocrites. Yeah. And I would say, I don't know that that's my community. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I also thought it was interesting is actually the most outspoken people during this whole time I did find to be women. I saw a lot of guys just kind of be like, well, you know, I, I particularly when it came to children. So I think it's that mama bear instinct that was I like, so. no, because it was the women that were yeah. really standing up, like really when it came to their kids. And the guys yeah. kind of just were like, I don't know. That's my perspective. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, I think there were a lot of moms and you see the emergence of groups like Moms for Liberty. I think yeah. women are generally responsible, even if they're full-time working, they're responsible mostly for caring for the children. They were yeah. responsible for educating them when they were at home on Zoom school. Uh, women dropped out of the workforce in droves, higher, much higher rates than men to take responsibility for that care of the children and the education of the children. So I think they saw it more firsthand. Mm -hmm. And in any family, there's a division of responsibility. And so if the men are out there still having to go to work, although at home, I I mean, it's understandable, we could have used more of their help. Certainly, my husband was very outspoken. So that was not my personal experience. But yeah. Um, Since we're on the topic of women, and you know, like you said, you've, it, it seems that you've ventured into other arenas too, uh, just about speaking up of truth, whether it's kind of the racial discussion or um, the one that's interesting now is kind of the Russell Brand thing coming up. Like, yeah, is, is there a middle ground between believe all women and where is this? You know what I mean? It feels like yeah. we, we overcorrect all the time. Yeah, I think the thing I, I've been sort of purposely not reading too too much about the Russell Brand thing. Yeah, um, I, it seems I'm very strange. Book. So I don't want to like over comment, but it does seem very strange and coordinated that it's all coming out now, sort of more than three years past the yeah. height of the Me Too movement. Like, why didn't these women come out in 2020, 2019, 18 when this? Because you remember in 2017 to 19, it was almost like every day. Mm-hmm. Some well-known man uh, was, you know, dragged through the mud and across the internet, often for real, either crimes or at the very least indiscretions. And then it sort of jumped the shark a little bit because you had people like Aziz Ansari, who was, you know, vilified in that piece on Babe.net for ordering the wrong kind of wine. I mean, that that seemed to me the moment. I don't know if you remember this piece uh, when comedian Aziz Ansari. There was a whole piece written on this no longer existent kind of feminist blog about this woman who went on a date with Aziz Ansari, the comedian, mm-hmm. and she had pursued him. And the whole piece is so cringe. It's awful. I read it like, <laughs> oh my God, this is the worst. Um, his first violation was he ordered red wine and she wanted oh, white. I remember this whole thing vaguely. Yeah. yeah. Was- and then she goes on to say that he sort of was forcing himself on her, although, you know, she would say no, and then she left. 
So at the end of the day, I mean, he might have been too aggressive, but he might have been pushy, but nothing happened and she left and that was that. Um, And it just felt to me like a real moment in that movement that was like, okay, you've lost. We don't have to honor every voice. You've lost this. This is crazy. There actually are real instances of sexual violence and we need to kind of stay focused there. Um, So I wonder why now, Um, why, Mm. you know, all of these women now, it just feels sort of very coordinated to me. It's not that he may not, he, look, he was, by his own admission, under the influence of very powerful drugs and behaved inappropriately from, you know, he was uh, the drug and a sex addict by his own admission. He's never said anything otherwise. Right. Um, I have no idea. I just, the timing is weird. And, you know, yes, these men deserve it. You can't, there, there is a thing as due process. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too. And it's also like, I do think there's a statute of limitations here. You know, something happened to me in college that was not, that I kind of remembered that was triggered at an event. It got triggered and I was like, oh my gosh, I, this had happened and this was wrong, but it's 20 years ago. Like, I'm not going to go back to the guy and like persecute, you know, and it was college. I was drunk. He, I was always drinking. Right. And, And so it's well, like, there is something that infantilizes women in this movement as well. And I'm a big, look, I, I sort of had a side role in the Me Too movement for athletes because I had been outspoken about the sexual abuse. I produced a whole movie on it called Athlete Day. Um, I certainly believe in the movement. Um, I knew and um, all the, the, the woman who found, I know the woman who founded the organization <laughs> called me too, and the board members. And I sort of participated in some of their meetings. I'm a believer. I, I think there yeah. is violence um, against yeah. women, but we dishonor the reality of that when every sideways glance becomes this huge indiscretion and that is punishable with unemployment. And when there is no forgiveness for men behaving in a way that sorry at the time was sort of just kind of the way it was like exactly you know and and it, it infantilizes us so why is it this is gonna you know not be a popular opinion um but a, a man who is drunk a young man in college is responsible for his actions can be accused of rape and kicked out of the university but a woman who is equally drunk mm-hmm. is not responsible for her actions that seems to me to infantilize us in a way that I'm not yes. interested in. That's what I felt. It's like, well, why aren't we looking at our own participation in this? Where were, you know, and again, it's, a. I think it's both sexes have to take responsibility for their behaviors that has led to this kind of overly. It's, and it's not an excuse of sexual, if for, no. men have no right to ever do that. You, you cannot force yourself on someone. But I think the way I would advise my daughter to behave, to ensure that she is safe and is taking responsibility for her own actions is that she needs to take responsibility for her own yeah. actions. I mean, she's only six now, but you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to be treated like a child. But that's what I'm saying. It infantile. It, it says like, oh, you don't have a voice. Like you're not strong enough to say no. And it's always a victim. It just constantly puts you in. A, I, that's what I realized. I'm like constantly in this victim mode. 
I'm like, that's not how I was raised. I reject that. And I think with the statute of limitations, when it comes to child sexual assault, I have sort of different opinions. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like what what the gymnastics world is very different than what happened on a college campus to one person. This is systemic. This is pedophilia. Yeah. I I don't even think you're comparing the same. They're apples and oranges. You can't. And for a child, we all know it often takes many, many years to even sort of make sense of what happened. Correct. So the statute of limitations, I think, when it comes to children are problematic. Everything when it comes to children is different. Yeah, of course. Right. Like the COVID thing, it was different with that. It's when you're talking about sexual abuse, it's different when you're talking about but back, and- back to Russell Brand for one one quick thing. Yeah, go for my it. understanding is he's already been booted off of the platform. I mean, and, and for those who don't know, I mean, he's been a diff- dissident voice on that sort yeah. of COVID crime. And so there's a case to be made that he is being punished for that. And my understanding is he's been kicked off whatever platform his, like YouTube, whatever platform he's on already because of these accusations. And so I'm not saying the accusations shouldn't be taken seriously. They should. There are are some from women who were minors at the time. It should absolutely be taken seriously. Um, But due process, like he he should not have his livelihood removed. He should not be tarred and feathered before there's been any sort of real investigation. And by the way, if this happened, then file a complaint with the police. Why are you, why the media? Yeah. Now, the one thing I will say about that, I'm backtracking slightly. Within the world of gymnastics, we did try, you know, I worked with several sort of cohorts of young women who had levied accusations against well-known coaches to USA Gymnastics and the USOC. We were ignored. We were pushed aside. And ultimately, we did use the power of the press Mm -hmm. um, to drive influence. And ultimately, several coaches were banned from the sport because of it. It was beyond the legal limit statute of limitations so they were not criminally Mm -hmm. um liable charged in any way but we did use the press because it failed but i don't think these women have gone to the authorities i think they went right to the press it just feels weird the whole thing feels weird yeah but it also like you said and i think i want to use this into a segue into kind of the religious persecution and and a quote that you had said um you talked about it it's almost like the left is seeking a religion so oh yeah and, and the problem true. is, is, and I did a, if, if you're interested, I'll send you this interview with Joshua Mitchell, who wrote a book called American Awakening. He's basically saying this woke movement, for lack of a better is word, they, they say they're not religious, but this is exactly a religion without yeah. forgiveness. So he yeah. equates it to Christianity because for Christ, Christians, that's through Jesus, right? That forgiveness piece, like you yeah. can't have, otherwise it just becomes a lynching all the time. So there's no but forgiveness it, in this path. It, there is no forgiveness except for those who commit actual violent crimes. I mean, because the same sort of, you know, woke left for lack of a better, you know, word um, is all for um, restorative justice for violent criminals. And yet if you say the wrong thing Mm -hmm. or you're accused of harassing a woman, but not kind of violence against a woman, or if, like me, you just sort of went against the orthodoxy and weren't even wrong, <laughs> then you, um, there is no forgiveness for you. Yeah. And he, that's I think, what I find really ironic is, you know, they're big on restorative justice, except yeah. for minor missteps. <laughs> right. The, the little things get really persecuted. I mean, he, he makes, he made this interesting analogy, which I think you'll find interesting um, being of the Jewish faith of like, 
the signs in the lawn was like the Passover, right? Social death will pass you by if you put the right sign on your lawn, the right saying outside your executive door, right? The right. Yeah. I think, or the right pronouns in your email signature, all of that. They're all signifiers that you're, you know, sort of doing the right thing and you're part of this group. I think, I guess my feeling is, and I'm born Jewish, but not all that practicing um, and not religious. My husband always says I have less of a religious impulse than anyone he's ever met. I, I to the point of like, I don't even understand having one, not really, like not in my mm. heart of hearts. I, I, I understand it intellectually. I understand mm. intellectually, it gives you a sense of belonging. It gives you a moral framework to sort of easily decide what is right and wrong. It gives you sort of hope and belief in, in most religions and afterlife, you know, which is comforting for a lot of people. I'm like, whatever, we die and that's it. <laughs> I'll do the best I can while I'm here. Um, but I do think most human beings have a sort of religious impulse, you know, mm -hmm. a desire for those things. And if they reject traditional religion, they will find it elsewhere. And I do think it's very cult-like in its execution um, right now on the left, and I reject it outright. You know, it's, yeah, there's no forgiveness. There's, it's an article of faith. I mean, think about it. Maths are an article of faith. Mm -hmm. there, there's no evidence mm -hmm. that they do anything, but it signals you're with the tribe. It signals you're caring. It signals you're adhering to this moral framework. And it's, it's belief in, you know, this totem power. Well, what's no, interesting you. is I was, I, and I don't know if this comes later in your book, but you just clarified that you're still not religious. I didn't know if I got that far. Maybe there was a little bit of a transformation because you talk about your Jewish heritage, but then you also quote C.S. Lewis. I'm like, people don't go around usually quoting C.S. Lewis that have no, you know, at least no um, interest in learning or belief in, in religion. So I, I found that curious that, you know, I mean, I'm very he's, also, he's also a philosopher, obviously, yeah. you know, of I mean, I am very interested, and in, you know, Jonathan Haidt talks about in um, the coddling of the American mind a little yeah. better. Maybe I just heard him talk about it, but you know, he talks about how we have this sort of religion-sized hole in our hearts that we're seeking yes. to fill as we become more secular. And I am really fascinated by that. I can't say that I was before 2020. You know, mm -hmm. I just said, you know, that I wasn't religious, that I would choose to kind of make decisions for myself as to what was right and wrong my religious friends would tell me, well, that's Jesus telling you that you just aren't calling it that. And I would say, no, it's not. It's just me. <laughs> but, you know, so I was interested in those conversations, but I, it seems to have taken hold as atheism and sort of secularism has taken hold, which it's growing, right? Leaps and bounds in, in American culture. Um, and it just seems there's this they seem related, you know, the abandoning of religious values and the flocking to sort of woke values. I think it's pretty hard not to draw some connection to those two things. Yeah, I I love that quote too. You know, there's a God-shaped hole in everyone's heart. We're trying to fill it with things that that will never fill it, you know? And I, I understand that everybody has like the spiritual impulse that I have, like you, yourself, but yeah, I do- I don't have it, but yeah. that's fine. Yeah. I get, I get having it. I mean, I get yeah. it intellectually. And, you know, frankly, I would fill it with something else. This is not doing us any favors. You know, it's not. And I would yeah. say my, 
my sort of take on religion probably up until about 2018, 2019, even before COVID was kind of in line with Bill Maher, who's sort of known as a, a, a critic of organized religion. I've come around on that um, significantly because what I observed during COVID, it was largely, and most of the friends I made during that time are more religious, not all, but, but some, many, mm-hmm. um, because I think there is a fundamental belief in the human soul and in sort of treating people like people. Now, organized religion, like anything organized, can be bad and corruptive and power corrupts and all of those things. So I, I, you know, that's what I had focused on in the future. But I think at the individual level, what I've seen is this sort of respect for our humanity mm-hmm. um, across a variety of, of religions. Um, and I didn't see that on the left. It seems to, the, the, the woke religion seems to treat us more as kind of cogs in a wheel or inputs right. in a model. Right. People are reluctant to do this, but Marxism is, is mm-hmm. atheism. It requires not a belief in God. Right. And so when people say and like. Denial of our humanity. Yeah, really. Or a soul. I mean, again, that yeah. might not be the right word for you, but it is the denial yes, that we're, we're something more than just these robots that work in industrial and we have to fight for our industry. You know what I mean? Our tre- Yes. And that in service of the sort of larger, in service of the whole, we have to deny the individuality of the human. Right. That's what it feels like to me. Well, and that's um, what religion said, you know, that, that um, particularly Christianity with with God is like, I, I know you, you are here for a reason. It's not just to manufacture widgets, you know, there's a purpose for your life. And I, and I think you as an individual, not just to be part of the larger whole, but you as an individual. Yes. And the left seems to deny that. Although I find it really ironic, not to, sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Within the sort of, uh, you know, debate around gender ideology, which we can talk about or not talk about, this belief that you have kind of a gendered spirit that you know, it seems to be a soul they're talking about. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't use that word, but this from the sort of secular left <laughs> um, are kind of reclaiming the notion of a soul through a gendered spirit, it feels like. Yeah. Well, and that's how they uh, they identify their uniqueness, right? Because boy or girl is too general. I have to be, I'm going to find the, because I took a picture of it. They lay claim to inscrutable labels like demisexual and reciprocal. I'm like, wait a second. I haven't heard of either one of those. So educate me. What's demisexual and reciprocal? There's, so I think, I believe there's 72 labels under the LGBTQIA header. So if you're any of these labels, you're queer, but here, I learned about this one, um, a demisexual, because I think um, Andrew Cuomo's daughter came out as a demisexual during COVID. Of course. Like, why this got any ink, I don't know. A demisexual is someone who only has sex with people that they have an emotional engagement or attachment to. So a woman, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I had this argument with my girlfriend. I was like, you can't tell me that women go around. I am just not convinced that women that say, oh, I can have sex with any man. Yeah. And I, I, I'm i sorry, you're lying to yourself. You I know what I mean? So. I, I mean, I'm sure they exist. There's the rare 
creature that exists. But I think but on for the, whole, the most part, we yeah. prefer to have some sort of emotional attachment. So that's a demisexual, which is now considered queer. And a reciprocal, I know. So if you like having sex with um, men, so you're straight, that actually care about you, in today's upside down world, that's queer. No. Yes. <laughs> And a reciprocal is kind of the same. I mean, they slice it so thin. I might be getting some of these wrong. I, I had a brief period of being obsessed with trying to understand <laughs> and parse these labels out. It, it, a reciprocal means you will only um, have sex or no, because this is a romantic relationship, have a sort of relationship with someone who expresses the feelings back to you. So again, I, one is about sex and one is about romance. Um, Isn't that just a human being? Isn't that just somebody that... Well, they got to label it now. And not only do they have to label it, it has to be not normal. It has to be queer. So you get points for that. Well, that's the thing, this notion of I'm special, right? It's weird because we're talking about the individuation of the soul, but you're actually not special in the realm of humanity. The, the feelings we all feel, the desire to be loved, the desire to be acknowledged, recognized, over it. like, yeah, they think this is something new. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think it also relates not just to sort of being um, sort of an individual, but being a victim mm. because, you know, you, people on the left say all the time that, you know, this word woke is not real. The woke mob isn't real. You know, it is. And they, they, they say that we can't define it. And, you know, I would just say wokeness is about a hierarchy of oppression. Mm-hmm. And the more victimized you are, the more victim status you can claim, the higher you are in the ranking. And that's why it's always changing because you might be in some conversations oppressed as a woman, but if you are a white cis, I hate using their terms, but if you're a I white know. cisgendered woman, um, you know, your ranking is ever moving. In some conversations, if the party wants to use us in the way that they might, we might rank high. But in other conversations, we're Karens and we rank sort of right down at the bottom next to white cisgender men. So um, declaring that you are queer and part of LGBTQIA plus makes you a victim. Yeah. And you get points for that. I think about that like a video game. I mean, last time, like, like Mario Brothers, like you, where you climb and you gain points as you climb, right? Like, right. Exactly. Like, yeah. Ding, 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 but, and you go up but, and you go up. But tell me, who in this world has been victimized or demonized for only wanting to have sex with people they know and care about? Like, that is not a class of people that is victimized. It's just silly, which is why they have to kind of tack it on to this like larger. LGBTQIA plus queer umbrella. Yeah. Here's the thing. Policy is never going to correct the ills of society. That's the first thing, right? Okay. So if you think that because you make some law, there's going to be no more homophobia or people are not, you know, you're, you're, you're dumb. That's stupid. So we can only do so much, but I, my initial thought was that um, gays kind of won their rights and and everything that they had wanted. And now they're lower down. They're like, do you know what I mean? Like they've been trampled by this new LG all-inclusive. And they're like, 
we didn't we don't want they want a divorce from the t yeah yeah we don't, a lot of them want to divorce the other letters yeah yeah so you know it's like this this is ridiculous this is not what don't include us in your like silly reindeer games here yeah well and i think at least for you know a lot of gay people in my generation they feel like the new sort of gender ideology is anti-gay in a sense you know i i know a lot of gay men in their 40s and 50s who feel like if I had been me now a very feminine little boy I would be told constantly that perhaps I was a girl that's the interesting thing is they deny the binary right yeah and then they're saying they kind of you can only participate in it yeah that's why the whole thing is founded on such like a logical well and and then you have sort of non-binary groups with, you know, transgender, which are at odds with each other as well, because a transgender ideology honors the binary and sex stereotypes, gender stereotypes, in a way that I always have pushed back against, whereas non-binary rejects the binary in a sense. So they're, uh, it's they're all- It's very confusing. Like when you have to explain all this, I'm like, then it's wrong. If it doesn't, if you have to like, can't get from A to B in a straight line, it's wrong. And you brought up something that this is why I get so outspoken about it, about the the gender stuff is like, I think for women like you and I who were athletic, who yeah. for me, I always struggled to like, identify my femininity. It's like, I don't like, I don't wear skirts. I don't put on yeah. a lot of makeup. I don't do my hair very well. Like I, I'm a, I'm a tomboy, but I'm still a woman. Like you wanted yeah. you. So you were kind of, I was trying to figure out like, at the same time, I wanted to hang out with the boys, drink beer and watch football. But then, yeah, of course, I wanted a very intimate, loving relationship. Right. Well, I and think and that- so I was like, now you're telling me all I have to do is put on a dress like a boy. That's all a boy has to do is put on a dress. And like with the Dylan Mulvaney thing, that's all he has to do. And that's a, and now that's a woman. We, we fought for years to, to to shatter that stereotype. Right. And to expand this sort of idea of how you can be and behave and be a woman, right? Yeah. We can be, some women are more outspoken. Some women are more aggressive. Some women, you know, don't dress like in a typically feminine fashion. Some women are lesbians, you know, and they don't want to date men. Women are all kinds of things. And so are men, by the way, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Some men are more sensitive. Some yep. men, um, some boys do play with girl toys, whatever that means. Some men are gay. Um, that's fine too, sort of expanding kind of what your gender expression, um, looks like and can be has been, I think, part of what feminists of our generation have, you know, fought for. If you think of, you know, first generation feminists, it was really about legal, it was about the right to vote, vote. frankly, you know, it was, it was suffrage. And then we kind of moved beyond that in the sort of second wave. Um, and it all just does seem a little upside down right now in retrograde because it's like, yeah, if I wear a dress and, you know, wear lots of makeup and act in a really sort of frivolous fashion, um, that's, that's a woman. Well, not yeah. me. That's not me. I know. And that's why I think people like you and I, who are either outspoken or um, seek to have like fulfilling jobs in this way that don't fit the traditional norm are now like demonized we're called what is it turfs like yeah we're, we're feminists but like i can't yeah. i don't really care anymore i know and that's I mean, when you're just like you start throwing up your head you're just like whatever yeah and i 
look, I, I care about the issue of fairness and safety in sports and yep. fairness and safety in women's spaces. And I care about children. And I think, you know, treating children who are suffering from perhaps all kinds of challenges um, and, you know, ensuring that we, we treat them in the best possible way and help shepherd them into adulthood as whole people. Um, that's what I care about. I, I'm not, I mean, I, whatever. I lived in San Francisco. I knew tons of trans people back before this was an issue. I mean, mm -hmm. they would probably call themselves transsexuals, not transgender. And that's a different categorization that some who are older right. um, in the community would prefer to adopt. Um, anyway, yeah, it's all gotten so crazy. At the end of the day, it's just truth. Like this idea that there is no such thing as biology is such a blatant lie that I refuse to further it. From the same people that said, trust the science and COVID, you know, that's pointed yeah, out I all the time. Yeah, I find it ironic. But... I, I saw this video from some protests in San Francisco just a couple days ago. Um, and, you know, the, a, a transgender sort of activist group showed up and deployed violence against these women who were kind of speaking out. But it was, it, I did notice that a lot of the activists who were behaving in violent fashion against these two women um, we're wearing masks of course outside now so it's there's an overlap <laughs> I wanted to um touch on you know this thing that you called like woke um woke capitalism and what's happening in the companies right in the organizations and yeah. how you saw like normally um I can't remember Chip's last name your your Berg. boss yeah Berg Berg um I mean First of all, did you feel, was that hard for you to come out against someone that you used to respect and, and you worked with and it seemed to be a good relationship there? And then, and then yeah. I guess what we can, we can go into like how kind of bouncing back to COVID, how it really sadly destroyed friendships and, and family. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Chip had been my boss my direct boss since about 2016, but I'd worked for him and known him since 2011 and had plenty of direct contact with him. Um, and I thought, you know, he did a ton of good at the company. I think he, um, or I thought he behaved in sort of an ethical fashion. You know, I knew that his background was more conservative. He had come from the military. Mm. Um, he grew up in the Midwest, but he, you know, his life changed when he was in his sort of late fifties and sixties and he moved to San Francisco and he ran this very progressive company and he um, had a mixed race child. And, you know, so he had, he married a, a Chinese woman, um, his second marriage. And so it, it made him rethink about a lot. There were a lot of gay employees here. I think he really rethought a lot of things. And I really respected that. Like somebody who at 50 or 60 years old continued to learn. Uh, that was the thing I respected the most about him was I felt like, wow, a lot of people stop, you know, being curious and wanting to learn and they stop reading and they stop, you know, they start thinking they're right about everything mm -hmm. as they age. And I, my experience with him was that that was not the case, you know, you know, there were other observations, which I don't go into in great detail in the book that he, I think was sometimes overly influenced by those around him and mm -hmm. didn't kind of make his own decisions, but at, at, he, he did not like having difficult conversations, which mm -hmm. is not a great quality and a leader and a manager. Mm -hmm. So he had other people have those conversations with me. I was very unaware that he was even aware of some of this until about a year in 
when he called me a Trumper in a meeting, at which point my respect kind of ended. <laughs> because I'm like, you're the one who's a Republican. You told me you were a Republican your whole yeah, life. So, um, so I just, you know, I think that he failed to exhibit what I would call sort of moral leadership um, in in this instance or any sort of courageous leadership. I don't think it would have been that difficult to stand up. He had, you know, he had two advisors, my peers, but peers that were a lower level than me, sort of the head of HR and the head of corporate, I'm telling them, you know, everyone hates Jen, everyone in the company's mad, she's going to bring the company down. I'm paraphrasing, you know, because of her beliefs and sentiments and advocacy. And he just listened and he just sort of adopted their view. And rather than tell employees in the company, look, I know there's about eight of you that are upset with Jen, but like, that's her outside of work. She's got four kids. She's got a long history of advocating for children. Sorry, you get to use your voice. She gets to use hers. Let's get back to work. And she does her job well. Like, And she's doing, and her, she's job doing well. her job and very well. Yes. And he that becomes he secondary. Chose, he chose not to say that. You know, yeah. and I, that's where I'm just like, there's a crisis in core. Uh, I think there's a crisis in courageous leadership more broadly in this country, but definitely in corporate America. And I think that corporate America and business leadership will, will suffer on the, on the world stage, American business ingenuity and leadership will suffer if CEOs don't stand up and start to lead again and say, let's get back to business. They're all caught up in all this virtue signaling. Do you think there's some sort of guilt that they're trying to make up for kind of the oh, yeah. 80s, old school, conservative? Thousand percent. Yeah, the, the kind of um, the yeah, um, abusive they're just, behavior of corporations. Yes. In the, yeah. Thousand percent. They're trying to distance themselves from the greedy corporate, you know, business leaders of the past. They, they don't believe greed is good or they certainly they, they are greedy. Um, they do still keep the money for themselves, but they want to present a virtuous image that they're here to change the world. It's bullshit. But do you think, I think, I think you mentioned this in the book? They actually buy into it. They don't see they don't see the disconnect between the way they're living in their mansions with their gates, their gated community. They actually believe, no, I'm a good person because I'm doing this. Yet give yeah, me my I money. Yeah, I I that's such a good I I mean, I think about this a lot. It's like they're sort of of two minds because they also know they don't want to be exposed. That's the risk of somebody like me, is just exposing the hypocrisy. So they want this facade to remain intact. And right. most people are willing to believe it. You know, there's an example I use in the book that, you know, Levi's laid off 15% of the workforce under the cover of COVID. Business was tough, but, you know, they did it to boost the bottom line. The stock went up, at least in part because of that. And the CEO cashed out on over $40 million in stock. Now, he said we were laying people off with empathy. That meant, you know, an extra week of pay or whatever. But really the empathetic worker-driven thing to do would have said would have been to say we're opening so we don't have to lay people up mm -hmm. we're going to give you your job we are going to mm -hmm. make sure you get to work no one said that in the business community. did they have that decision though in california you know was that was that an available decision to them because you know what these corporate leaders in california flex their muscle all the time to influence politicians why didn't they get together and go yeah. and say gavin newsom your winery is open you're not missing a day of pay. Mm -hmm. You're not missing anything. They could have, they could we have need, exerted their. We need support. the opportunity. Yep. Think about the big companies in California. 
Think about it. There's mm-hmm. Google and there's Apple and there's Facebook. And I mean, Levi's is small potatoes compared yeah. to any of these companies. There's yeah. HP and there's all these companies. Why couldn't business leaders get together and say, well, first of all, the tech companies didn't want to. They were benefiting from us being closed. Right. But let, let, net, let's say non-tech companies. Why couldn't they get together and say, you are putting us out of business and you are putting workers out of work. This is not right. They could have leveraged their influence and power to influence the policy. Well, you touched on something very interesting that I wrote an article about yesterday. Um, but California, is, as Newsom brags, it's the sixth largest economy in the world. It is it is not manufacturing. It is heavily yeah. tech. So most of yeah. the income is coming from the businesses that you said would profit. So I can see like, even if a couple of the bigger companies that are in manufacturing or, or retail sales, like they wouldn't have had the same impact because most of the power in California, as far as businesses, it's sure. really tech and innovation and real estate. But yeah, well, the real estate market's crashing. Yeah. Especially uh, corporate real estate because everybody's closing their offices. You know, I would argue there's enough power and influence with some of these other large companies, whether it's, um, you know, Levi's, Wells Fargo. I mean, there's very, I'm thinking of San Francisco based companies. Yeah. There are large companies, but even you have a tech company like Salesforce. Um, which is a tech company based in San Francisco, led by Mark Benioff, the companies they service struggled. So Salesforce didn't necessarily, but again, there's, you know, I look at the financial challenges we've all faced in the last two to three years and the inflation, which is still alive and well, though the Biden administration wouldn't want you to know that. Like I kept saying at the time, you cannot shut down the world economy and think this isn't going to have long-term repercussions. Yeah. So much of what we're dealing with now is because we did that. Oh, we shut yeah. down the world's economy. We sent people a thousand bucks. How long, how far does that go? Yeah. If you're a family. Of well, four. that's like the 700 to the, to the victims of the fire in Hawaii. Here's $700. It's like insane. And what then they, they needed, pat themselves on the back. Like we're so awesome. Yeah. What they needed were their jobs. That's yeah. what they needed. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think, yes, they like, I think they're of two minds. They want to look CEO compensation as a, uh, an index of regular everyday employee compensation, it's gone up, I think like a thousand fold. I mean, it's like ridiculous. Yeah. I think it's on, uh, it's like, I'm going to forget the number. It's like, I don't want to cite the number and get it wrong, but it's a gazillion times more than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Right. So they clearly care about enriching themselves or they wouldn't put policies in place. You could put a policy in place in a company that says, the CEO can't make more than 30 times more than the average employee. They make thousands of times yeah. right now yeah. than the average employee. So what they really care about is enriching themselves, but they want their cake and eat it too. Yeah. They want to be rich and beloved. Yeah. They don't want to be despised mm. mm-hmm. um, as, you know, a As they were girl. in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They don't want to be despised as like this, like, you know, corporate raider and they get a lot of positive feedback. Mm-hmm. from their family, from their kids, from, you know, and so nobody wants to upset that apple cart. What I don't understand is why employees buy it. I don't, mm-hmm. that's what I don't get. Like they buy the line, we're laying people off with empathy while they take all the money for themselves and give you two weeks of pay. Why are you buying that? I don't know. They've, they've been easily susceptible to lies and, and appearances. But don't you, I guess what I've come to understand, that is not unique to us in this time and place. I think mm. that is a human truth. And when you look across time and geography, most people 
are willing to be deceived and they would rather stand with the crowd than stand apart and be right. And, you know, I just, that's, it it seems to me that there's sort of 10% on either side. There's 10% that are willing to kind of stand up and risk um, their social standing uh, employment. There's 10% that are true believers. And then there's like 80 in the middle that are like, I'll just go along until someone tells me otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think everybody's being pushed a little bit though, to the limit, you know, because eventually- the woke mob comes for everybody. They start oh, to yeah. eat their own. Yeah, eventually the ethos and the like mores change. And so that percent in the middle kind of gets on board. You know, my experience in gymnastics and speaking out, I was demonized by everyone in the gymnastics community. 10 years later, when the Nasser story broke, they all said, oh, we stood with you the whole time. Mm-hmm. So they they move. That's convenient. It's not, it's not that they don't move. They move to where the group is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found the the one quote I found interesting back to your um, CEO, he said uh, that he said in the midst of the pandemic, there are no more values led CEOs in the world than those in pharma. I mean, that just, he literally said that to me directly. I mean, the weird part is during this whole time, I didn't have that many one-on-one conversations with him, even though he was my boss, because he liked to avoid difficult. When he said that to me, it was like, I think he said it to me at a dinner. I, I mean, I almost spit out my food like what could be less true but he had been to a conference this is when things had started to open up and he had been seated at a table with a couple of pharma CEOs and he was very influenced by Mm. their spewing of garbage um that's what I mean by I think he was sort of not critical enough at times like he yeah he was overly influenced sometimes by those around him. Like there's a balance because you want, I do think you want to be influenced. You want to be yeah. open to changing yeah. your mind. Yeah. But then you need some rudder and some ability to kind of parse when people are viewing a line of bullshit. Well, and I know? do think like you were saying that that religion does give you that rudder. That's probably why when you said like a lot more of your friends that that you've gained yeah. in the past few years do have this underpinning in their life. And I, I think- you know, some people don't need it. I think a lot of people do. They need some framework. Yeah. Yeah. What I, where I start to veer is I've also met some people and ultimately over time, you know, some of those relationships have, have frayed that are a little more, they're not forgiving in their sort of religiously held beliefs. You know, they're not of the mind that like, everyone's a sinner. We all walk in sin. So I love you. You've done things yep. wrong, but I don't do it. I've done things wrong. They're of the mind that they are right. Yeah. This is the framework. You are evil if you do or believe these things. So I can no longer hang out with you. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. there's definitely ways that it can veer. You know, my friends who are Christian, who aren't that way, feel like that is very unchristian in terms of a way to behave. Yeah, it's that humility that we're all listen, and even the pharma CEOs, right? They're human. They're fallen. They're pro- they're just falling prey to the sin of greed and whatever it is. Like on an individual level, for me, it's harder to criticize people on the individual. You know, if I met someone face to face, yeah, and that's why for, it's like so hard because now you're getting these mobs of people. You're being att- You're being called names by mobs of people, and that's what I'm critical against. Like I am happy to sit and have a conversation with somebody that believes they're pansexual, try, you know, whatever it is, let's (laughs) have, let's have a, but I'm at the point where I do refuse to use the pronoun thing because it's a lie. 
It's yeah. just a lie. And I, I, I said, I am happy to treat you with respect and yeah. love and kindness. And I can probably, I've done enough psychology through my spiritual practices that I can probably unravel this a little bit and see where this is coming from. Yeah. Right? What sort of trauma and have empathy for you, but I'm not going to continue to live in a lie. Well, I won't. It concedes to this worldview that we can choose our sex and that yeah. biology isn't real. I, I won't concede to that worldview. Yeah. yeah, there while I was at Levi's, that became sort of the trend, right? As everybody had to put their pronouns in their bio, and there was a push for executives to sort of set the right example and do it. And I just didn't do it because I was like, but you know what I am. I've had four children here. <laughs> like you've seen me pregnant. You see, like, I, this is silly. It's just done. I'm not going to do it. I, I, I didn't really have the words for it at the time because I hadn't thought about some of this as much, but it's conceding to a, a worldview that I find rooted in a lie. And so I won't, I, that, you know, that's what I would have, well, I probably wouldn't have said it because I was in a, enough trouble. Um, there were certain things I chose not to fight about. I just sort of quietly didn't do them. Yeah. Well, gosh, I know we could go on much longer. I want to give a couple minutes to, for you to tell people, you know, where you've been since Levi's, what you're doing now, you moved to Colorado, obviously, um, and just how things have progressed since, when was that, 2021 or 2020? I left Levi's in February of 2022. So it's oh, like a little over a year and a half. Yeah. I held you hung on in there a for a while. <laughs> yeah. I held on because I was doing a good job. Like, I think they were afraid to let go of me or mm. push me out. Um because I was actually doing a really good job and the company is not really performing now. So I'll just, you know, I'm not saying that because of me. Um, I think it's more a function of focusing on the wrong thing. The overall, the overall yeah. direction they're going in. Right. Yeah. Like I think my being pushed out is a symptom of the larger problem. It's right. not that they're not performing because I'm not there. I don't have that kind of hubris. Um, yeah. I, I wrote a book, which you are reading, which is so nice called Levi's Unbuttoned. Uh, which you can get where books are sold and Amazon, et cetera. Um, that was my break here where I was supposed to be relaxing. Was I wrote a book, was that relaxing? Um, and I just completed filming a documentary on the impact of children and families from closed schools. And we're editing now. That's oh, called wow. Generation COVID. Um, and I started consulting, doing some business consulting um, and trying to figure out what's next. That's it. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I write a Substack, which people can check out if they like Substack. Okay. Just my name on Substack. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you. It's been keeping you busy, even though it's, it's probably nice to have time with your family too. A little time off from. Yeah, I mean, race. I have to work. Yeah, it's nice. I do have to work. I mean, I'm the breadwinner. My husband mm -hmm. is the stay-at-home dad, and I, um, you know, I certainly did well as an executive, but not well enough not to work. Um, yeah. in this regard, in a sense, they weaponized my femaleness against me and that I was underpaid as, you know, versus my peers for a very, very long time. So I, um, I need to work. So, you know, that's my focus now is figuring out what that's going to look like. Um, really quick about the documentary you're talking about, what is your take on, I'm sure you saw that piece in the Atlantic, um, you know, so many people are just like, can't we forgive and forgive, right? The the party of unforgiveness is saying, we just need to move past this, right? We yeah. just need to, you know, there were mistakes made or we didn't but know, they we knew some, we didn't only, know what we didn't know. But they only want, 
that was a piece by Emily Oster of, of maybe eight months ago at this point about yeah. requesting amnesty. They only want amnesty for the people on the left who push right. closures and lockdowns. They're not suggesting I get any amnesty for right. having been right. Right. And what to me was very clear in that piece, and I think Professor Oster did some really good work during during COVID, but I, I disagree. <laughs> um with with the piece in, in almost in its entirety because the the premise seemed to be you know the good people were wrong but for the right reasons so we should forgive them mm -hmm. those of you who were right it was for the wrong reasons therefore you should get no forgiveness yeah sorry and you know what if you hold a position of power and authority and you're that wrong and you harm that many people when all the facts were clear no you don't get forgiveness Sorry. Yeah, it's this lack of accountability. That's what I just hope it's, it's, that's why I keep having these discussions on COVID, not because I want to relive or we need to, you know, we need to learn the lessons and we're not learning any lessons. No one's held accountable. You know? We have not learned. There are schools now that have re-implemented mask mandates that have closed for a handful of COVID cases, which is basically, you know, if it wasn't before, it certainly is now, you know, a minor respiratory virus and with cold-like symptoms now. Um, and yeah, we're, they're closing schools in some parts of the country. Yeah. And, and, you know, now to close schools when children are so hopelessly behind and chronic absenteeism is at an all time high and kids don't know how to read. It's like, yeah, every day does matter. Every mm -hmm. day where a school is closed matters. Kids aren't even showing up to go to school because yeah. you know why we signaled to them for two years that their education and that they were not essential. Is it any surprise that they fail to show up now? Mm -hmm. It's not surprising to me. I knew this would happen. And when they do show up, they are utterly unprepared um, from an emotional um, and developmental perspective. There's violence in the schools. They, 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 you know, teachers report that children are behaving two to three years below grade level um, because they are. I didn't even think <laughs> about the socialization. You know, everyone's talking about the math scores and the reading scores. And I looked at a lot of the the educational data from just the hard math, you know, the scores, but I didn't even think about like yeah, the, the socialization. Social, yeah, the social and emotional development is way behind as well. So you hear, I mean, there's a lot written about sort of college professors, you know, with college freshmen who are behaving like, you know, high school sophomores because they miss that two years of social, you know, emotional development. And then you hear the same in, in high schools and middle schools, et cetera. Um, I've talked to special education teachers who, you know, um, are teaching kids, you know, they, they, they tell me that normally they had kids in second and third grade struggling to read. They now have kids in fifth grade who don't yet know how to read. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody is, you know, two to three years behind both educationally as well as socially and emotionally. And the, the problem with the reading is, I think the phrase is, you know, up until third grade, you're learning to read. And then beyond third grade, you're reading to learn. So mm. it accelerates exponentially after third grade every year that you can't read how far you fall behind. And that's what we're facing right now with yeah. far too many American children. Well, it's not, not like, you know, kids weren't getting more and more immature by the year just... And wow. without COVID, right? Like safe spaces and all that. I, I had no idea that was going on until I kind of came out of this cave and I'm like, oh my gosh, what? You can't say that anymore? So I, I guess that just accelerated it. I didn't think about that. Oh yeah. The fragility is concerning. Yes, it is. Well, this was anyway, awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really appreciate it.
Um, nice, to, nice to meet you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Jennifer's story as much as I did. She is so inspirational and reminds us all of the importance of standing for truth and not backing down to the mob. Stay tuned for the next episode of Connection where I interview another incredibly inspiring woman. Her name is Deanna Seymour, and she is leading one of the top women's health brands in the nation right now. Until then, please hit the like button, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with friends and anyone you know who might be interested in these important conversations. Also, feel free to drop me a line if you have any suggestions of guests or comments or questions. Until next time, stay connected.